Now would you please open your Bibles to the book of Galatians as we consider or continue and consider uh, our series of Gospel Reset recognizing that that which fuels and energizes and vitalizes us as believers in Christ is the continual rediscovery and reapplication of the gospel to our own hearts where we uh, experience both the therapeutic, that is the healing aspects of the gospel, as well as the relational impact of the gospel, how the gospel shapes and um, has everything to do with how we relate to one another as people. With that said, today we're in chapter 3, and for the next uh, three Sundays, counting today, we will be looking at the, the biblical doctrine of adoption to sonship. Um, but I decided to slow down and take my time as we look at this. And of course, one of the great places in the Bible to speak of this is in the book of Galatians. But today we're in chapter 3. Um, and we're going to read verses 26 through chapter 4, verse 2. Hear now uh, the word of the Lord as we find it in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, and verse 26. For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. This is God's word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, as we open up your word today, uh, we pray that your word would speak to us. As Martin Luther says, the Bible is alive. It has uh, a voice. It speaks to us. It has feet. It pursues us. It has hands. It lays hold of us. And we pray that your word would be active and powerful in our midst today. And this we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God wrote uh, the following in speaking uh, regarding the doctrine of adoption. He said this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. 
Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. Let me repeat that. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. I have heard it seriously argued that the thought of divine fatherhood can mean nothing to those whose human father was inadequate, lacking wisdom, affection, or both, nor to those many who were, uh, whose misfortune it was to have a fatherless upbringing. This is silly, for it's not just not true to suggest that in the realm of personal relations, positive concepts cannot be formed by contrast. The truth is that all of us have a positive ideal of fatherhood by which we judge our own and others' fathers. How else could we be happy, unhappy with our bad fathers? And it can safely be said that the person for whom the thought of God's perfect fatherhood is meaningless or repellent does not exist. And so this morning, we're going to take a look again uh, through the lenses of Galatians for a couple of weeks, also in Romans chapter 8, as we consider this idea of being the children of God, of being adopted into his family. Sinclair Ferguson said the notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. If you really want to understand who a Christian is and why being a Christian is such a grand privilege, we need to appreciate the divine adoption. If Jesus, as the seed of, of Abraham, gets all of Abraham's promised blessings, then anyone who belongs to Christ through faith automatically becomes an heir of the promises of Abraham. How does this inheritance come to us? Through the Son, we become children of God legally, receiving a new status, and through the Spirit, we become God's children experientially, which we will look at more so next week. The heart of the Christian life is chapter 3, verse 26 of Galatians, which says, You are all sons of God. We are already our sons. It's not something we're aiming at. It's not something we're hoping for. It's not a future attainment. It's not something we work toward. It is something we already have. It is our present possession and state. But sonship is not a universal given. We are not children of God in some sort of general way. By virtue of having been created by him, there is a sense in which all human beings are God's offspring because all human beings have been made in his image. But Paul is speaking of a much deeper kind of relationship here. This sonship comes through faith in Christ Jesus. We were only his sons when we have faith in the Son. It is through faith that God adopts us. Many take offense in our current day culture of using the masculine words sons to refer to all Christians male and female. You are children of God the Bible tells us, but if we are too quick to correct the biblical language, we miss the revolutionary uh, 
and radically egalitarian nature of what Paul is saying uh, in this verse. In most cultures, uh, that is ancient cultures, daughters could never inherit property. Uh, therefore, son meant legal heir, which was a status forbidden to women. But the gospel tells us that we are all sons uh, of God in Christ. We are all heirs. Similarly, the Bible describes all Christians together, including men, as the bride of Christ. So though I am a man, I am also the bride of Christ. And though you are a woman, you are regarded as a son. Let me explain a little more. How, what difference does that make? Therefore, son means legal heir. We are all heirs. Uh, the Bible describes all Christians together, including men, as the bride of Christ. God is even-handed in his gender-specific metaphors. Men are part of his son's bride, and women are his sons, his heirs. If we let Paul call Christian women sons of God, or, or if we refuse to allow Paul to call Christian women sons of God, we miss how radical and wonderful a claim is that we have before us. And so women's status is radically elevated in light of the doctrine of adoption and the gospel. But one of the things I think that's important for us to remember then is how does faith in Christ mean we are treated as God's son? Verse 27 tells us, Through faith, the public sign of which is being baptized into Christ, Paul tells these believers that they have clothed themselves with Christ. And this clothing metaphor is a favorite metaphor of the Apostle Paul. He does it in Romans 13. He does it in Ephesians 4. He does it in Colossians 3. Here he likens Christ himself to a garment. And this idea of clothing ourselves with Christ implies four amazing things, and I want you to hear them. The clothing imagery that Paul uses here. Why do we wear clothes anyway? Well, generally we wear clothes to cover our nakedness. If you think back to the Garden of Eden and you think when Adam and, in, Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were opened and they knew, the scripture tells us, that they were naked and they went and hid themselves away from God in shame and in fear uh, in the garden. And so, as a result of that, they decided to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. And they made aprons for themselves uh, to cover themselves from their shame and nakedness. And nakedness, in this case, means more than not just having your clothes on. It meant vulnerable. It meant shame. It meant fear. It meant uh, liability to judgment. It meant a sense of culpability. And because of that, they hid themselves from God when normally in the cool of the day they would walk with him in the garden and enjoy that. But what has Christ done with us and for us? My primary, absolute, ultimate identity is a person is one who is clothed with Christ. Soren Kierkegaard. 
A philosopher, a Danish philosopher, once said this. He said, sin is attempting to establish my identity outside of Christ. Biblical identity means I have been clothed with Christ. What does it mean to be clothed with Christ? Well, we know about clothes. For example, some days when I go to Walmart to buy groceries early in the morning, I might look like a homeless person. I just grab whatever I got, slap it on, put a ball cap on, and I go. So if somebody saw me, they might have thought I spent the night in the parking lot. Uh, days like today, I dress up a little more. I look a little more like a church-going person or business casual or however you want to say it. Police wear uniforms uh, that identify who they are. Lawyers generally wear suits. Uh, they're called suits sometimes. Uh, people who are in professional positions. Doctors wear lab coats. Uh, scrubs sometimes. We identify people by what, by what we wear. But who do we wear when we're Christians? We wear Christ. What does that mean? That means when God looks at me, he sees who? Christ. He sees Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness covering my shame and my nakedness. He sees Christ and all of his glory covering me. Me, I am clothed with Christ. Our clothing tells people who we are. Nearly every kind of clothing actually is actually a uniform showing we are identified with others of, in these days it's a little tough to say this, a same gender or social class or national group. But to say that Christ is our clothing is to say that our ultimate identity as human beings is found not in any of these classifications, but in Christ alone. Through faith, I am organically connected to him. And when God sees me, he is pleased with me because I am hidden in his son. Remember when Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened up. And the spirit in the form of a dove descended upon him. And a voice from heaven came saying to him, there you have the Trinity. The spirit represented as a dove, the son of God being baptized. And the voice of the father coming from heaven. The father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And once we are brought into the family, you need to know this. Because you're not going to feel like this all the time. But you need to know that if you're clothed with Christ, you are perceived and seen as his beloved, well-loved, chosen son. What a wonderful privilege adoption is. What a wonderful privilege being united, organically connected to him through faith is. And so, number one, our primary identity is in Christ. That goes with the clothing metaphor. But the closeness of our relationship to Christ is also indicated by the clothing metaphor. Your clothes are kept closer to you than any other possession. You rely on them for shelter every moment. They go everywhere with you. So to say Christ is our clothing is to call us to a moment-by-moment -moment dependence and existential awareness of Christ. We are to spiritually practice His presence. And that's what it means to practice His presence, to realize that I'm clothed with Christ. It has to do with the imitation of Christ. To practice the presence of Christ entails that we continually think and act as if we were directly before His face. 
The reformers like to call this concept Coram Deo, before the face of God. We have his approval in Christ. God is not looking at us, sneering at us. God is not looking at us, judging us. He's already judged us in his son upon the cross. He is looking at us and beholding us as his own. And we learn to live under the smile and approval of God. So many of you are hardwired into thinking that you have to earn that. Often, discipleship approaches and programs in Christianity without the heart of the gospel overshadowing and providing the foundation from them end up becoming a way we try to earn the smile of God. But in Jesus Christ, you already have it. And you can't add to it. You can't make it more glorious. And because of that, once you believe that, once that breaks through from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet, you are the most motivated human being in the world to want to obey Jesus. Your motives are totally transformed and totally moved. And finally, our acceptability to God. Clothing is worn as adornment. It covers our nakedness. And God has been providing clothes which cover our shame since the fall. To say that Christ is our clothing is to say that in God's sight, we are loved because of Jesus' work and salvation. When God looks at us, he sees us as his sons because he sees his son and us in him. The Lord Jesus has given us his righteousness, his perfection to wear. And you can never improve upon that. You could never reach it on your own, and you can never improve upon that. And to understand that gives you a spiritual freedom that I don't think I can find the words to define and describe for you. God is not against you. He's for you. He's not looking to strike you. He is, although, a father. We'll talk about this more in another message. A father who disciplines his children. uh, But he never separates himself from us because of our sin and failure and um, general disobedience. To say that Christ is our clothing is to say that we are loved in Christ. And so Galatians 3.27 is a daring and comprehensive metaphor for what it means to have new life. It means to think of Christ constantly, to have his spirit and his character infuse and permeate everything we think, say, and do. And it goes far beyond the concept of keeping some kind of rule or regulation. This uh, goes beyond simple obedience. It is to be as it were, in love with Christ, bathed in him, awash in him. A Christian can never need some additional commitment to the law of Moses in order to receive or maintain full acceptance with God. He or she is clothed with Christ. But the second thing I wanted to focus on this morning uh, in your outline is uh, not only our identity and status, but also our unity in the Son, our oneness in Christ. Verse 26 reveals to us the amazing intimacy that exists between Christians and their God, our Father. 
Verse 27 outlines the wonderful closeness between Christians and God the Son, our Savior. Verse 28 of Galatians 3 flows out of these two verses and shows us the unity between Christians. There is no division between different races, different social strata, and different genders. Okay? This is not to say that there's no longer any distinction inside of the church. It does mean, for example, that Greeks should not keep their distinct Greek culture and consciousness. That they must become identical to the Jews. That's one of the main points of the whole book of Galatians. It cannot mean, therefore, that there should be no distinctions between male and female in the way we live. Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5. Uh, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, shows that he did not mean the statement to obliterate distinctive duties and practices for different cultures, classes, and genders. We're not all identical or interchangeable, but we are all one. The gospel has radical social implications. It means I am a Christian before I am anything or anyone else. It means that all barriers that separate people into the world, into warring factions, come down in Christ. Paul picks up on three barriers that usually divide people. First, the cultural barrier. He says, in Christ Jesus we're neither Jew nor Greek. Cultural divisions are to have no part in the church. People of one culture do not need to become like another culture in order to be accepted by God. So we should accept one another without one group feeling or declaring superiority of its cultural ways over against another. Inside the church we should associate with love and love one another across racial and cultural barriers. One time I interviewed for a church planting job in a city in the south that wanted to plant a church that had a racial plurality in it. In that particular city it would be black and white. And so they uh, called me and I went to talk to them and they asked me, well how would you go about uh, bringing about a church that will fit our vision of racial reconciliation? And I told them I would preach the gospel. And they looked at me like I'd lost my mind. I said, I'll just preach the gospel. I said, if people really understand, grasp, and get the gospel, that will become the fruit of the gospel, not the reason for the church to exist. Racial reconciliation will occur if people of both races understand it's not ultimately about race. Race is not my identity. My identity is who I am in Christ in the church. And so therefore, if you're going to do that, you've got to have someone who knows how to preach, articulate, and apply the gospel to all people regardless of race because our oneness is our being in Christ. No culture is perfect. No culture has the supremacy over any. All cultures are flawed. All cultures have idols. All cultures struggle. So we're not discussing cultural supremacy here. We are talking of all of us bowing the knee to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and recognizing that in Him we have a unity and a oneness. There's so much talk of diversity today. 
But all diversity and no unity ends up with anarchy. It ends up with absolute division and distrust which is where things are headed if we don't wake up and recognize that we are a nation e pluribus unum. Out of the many what? One. And there has to be an essential oneness. And so, we do not declare the superiority of one culture over another. We learn to love one another across racial and cultural barriers. Secondly, there's a class barrier. The class barrier, neither slave nor free. Again, economic stratification should not extend into the church. People should not associate as in the world according to class, but across such barriers. The poor and modestly paid worker must not be made to feel inferior in any way. Or on the other hand, the well-off must not be resented or shunned. By the way, everybody's got money problems. Everybody. I uh, heard a sermon this past week on greed. And it was really interesting. Uh, this pastor who was preaching on greed, he said, if I preach on sexual impurity or lust or whatever, and I take a poll of the congregation of how many people are struggling with that, he said, most of the men's hands will go up and a few of the women. He said, but if I preach on greed and I ask people, how many of you struggle with greed? Guess what? Nobody's hand goes up. Nobody thinks they're greedy. And yet, the truth is, greed is at the heart and soul of idolatry. So if you have struggle with idols, you're struggling with greed. But here's a big one today, the gender barrier. Neither male nor female. This was perhaps the strongest wall and barrier of Paul's day. Women were considered absolutely inferior to men. It was a patriarchal culture, no doubt. Even today, the application of this principle is probably the most explosive and controversial. But in any case, it was clearly revolutionary because women are equal in Christ before God. They must be seen to be equally gifted and able as men. It's natural to ask, what was Paul's understanding of the implication of verse 28 for society in general? Was neither slave nor free a call for the abolition of slavery? If so, why does he tell slaves to be diligent in their work in Ephesians and Colossians? Notice that his thesis in Galatians 3 is that this radical equality is for those who are in Christ. The implications of this for broader society were just that, implications that have had to work themselves out over the years. For one example, societies followed the law of the that time of primogeniture. The oldest son inherited virtually the whole family estate. That's why the elder brother was so ticked off at the prodigal son for taking his inheritance. The laws of primogeniture. Uh, Paul plays off this custom to tell every Christian, male and female, that he or she is equally God's heir, heirship, to all of which Jesus is heir. We are joint heirs with Jesus. Do you know what that means? Do you understand what that means? I've lived long enough now to have parents who have gone on to be with the Lord, thank and praise His name, who left me an inheritance. Now, neither one of my mom or dad ever received any inheritance from their parents, ever. 
Uh, my parents were first generation out of my mother's family was sharecroppers. My daddy's family, I was told, was poorer than sharecroppers. Sharecroppers would have been a step up for my dad's family. But my mom and dad left uh, the two sons who were left. My older brother is in heaven with them. And I recently received an inheritance. And what a wonderful gift that was. What a sobering moment that they invested all of their lives in what they did and left something for their children. And it's, it's a wonderful idea, but think about it. That pales into comparison with what it means to be a joint heir with Jesus. Meaning we are going to inherit with him his glory of the renewed heaven and earth, of everything that is. Sometimes we fight over such piddly stuff here when we think in the light of eternity of what it means to be a joint heir with Jesus. He has purchased for us that privilege and joy. No longer the law of primogeniture, but just as obviously Christian families who begin to think this way so subversive to Social attitudes will have a tendency to drop that practice in the long run. The freedom of the gospel has to change our attitude toward everything in life. You need to bring everything in your life under the scrutiny of the reality of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. That is what sanctification is. And that is what growth in grace is. You know, I remember when I first became a Christian and I, I was greatly... Uh, influenced by a group, a wonderful group of men called the Navigators. And their uh, calling in uh, the world at that point was to disciple. They, they felt like the church was not adequately addressing discipleship, and so they came to see, to fill a need. And I learned a lot about the, the Navigators, except for one thing. They didn't teach me the gospel. They did not teach me the gospel. They taught me how to be a disciple, but without the gospel, without the gospel, all your discipleship will turn you into is a Pharisee. That's all it will do. It will turn you into the worst kind of Pharisee. You know all the right things to do, and that's important, and I'm not denigrating that. And I benefited greatly from learning that. But one of the things that happened to me as a Christian, being influenced that way, is I began to see God was always looking at how I was performing. He was always measuring and judging me by how often I used the spiritual disciplines, how often I was faithful to share my faith, how much time I spent in prayer. And so I lived this existence of constant condemnation. It was like Romans 8.1 was not in the Bible. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And for some reason that had no bearing on my heart. And so while I understood the basic facts of the gospel, I understood what Jesus did, it was not an existential powerful reality in my own soul. And so I took the good gifts of God, even the good ministries of God, and used them in ways that rather than making me spiritually mature, they made me even spiritually more immature as a Pharisee. And so that's why it's so important for this gospel reset, this whole understanding of this, because that's the foundation out of which everything proceeds. Uh, there seems to be a veil with some people who don't see that, who don't quite get that yet. 
But the truths of verses 26 and 27 lead to the kind of unity we're talking about. How? First, the good news of the gospel creates unity. The privileges we get in the gospel, sonship, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the perfect righteousness of Jesus, all because our union with Christ is real, are so stupendous that they have to surpass the greatest earthly merited or inherited advantages. How can I look down on someone who is clothed with Christ? Why would I ever be jealous of anyone when I am a son of God? Second, the bad news of the gospel creates unity. As recipients of grace, we know that our blessings come unearned. And so our pride in our race, our status, our gender is gone. We are, uh, we know we are sinners like everyone else. And there's no reason for us to ever think of ourselves better than or exclude others. We're sinners adopted by grace. But we are heirs through Christ. Every verse of this section stretches uh, the horizons, thrilling our hearts as we reach upward. And verse 28 spans the globe, united with every other Christian. But verse 29 looks back at history. By clothing ourselves with Christ through faith, we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All that God promised Abraham. He has fulfilled and will fulfill in his son Jesus so that all that God promised we will enjoy as his adopted sons. Now the great truths of chapter 3 verse 26 through 29 reach up out and back. They'll take a lifetime to appreciate. They give us an eternity to enjoy them. So the start of chapter 4, Paul pauses on these truths to help us continue to grasp what it means to be adopted by God. To illustrate our sonship, Paul uses the illustration of a young child who is the heir of a great estate. When he is a minor, he is no different than a slave since he is subject to guardians and trustees. But when he comes of age, he comes into his inheritance. In ancient times, the process of coming of age was an important and well-defined process. A Roman child, heir, was a minor under guardians until age 14, and was still, to some degree, under trustees until the age of 25. Not until then could the youth exercise complete and independent control over his estate. What does it mean to be a child? No different from a slave? Paul's illustration applies to us spiritually on three different levels. Different uh, scholars choose different levels, but I think there are three implied by the text. First, it shows that in the time of Moses' leadership, the people of God had spiritual liberty promised to them in their covenant with God made at Mount Sinai. But they had not yet come to possess the experience of it. With few exceptions, people under the Mosaic Covenant did not experience the promised intimacy and freedom because the means and assurance of forgiveness was general and vague. Look at Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, you'll see that. On a second level, this is a picture of all human beings. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. 
Paul will outline more forcefully and fully what that means later in the book. But since most Galatians had not been born Jews, Paul meant that all human beings are spiritual slaves before coming to Christ. We are all, in a sense, under the law, even if we've never heard of the Bible or the Ten Commandments or Moses, because we are all desperately trying to live up to some kind of standard. We are anxious and burdened, and our relationship with the divine is remote at best, but non-existent, more likely. Finally, on a third level, the picture of how Christians may, to some degree, fail to experience the freedom and joy of their salvation. Christians can continue to live day by day as slaves instead of adopted sons of God. We have what is called an orphan mindset, and that orphan mindset generally arises from an ignorance and lack of perception to the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us. We'll talk about that orphan mindset, but not today. I'm saving it. So, Paul will return to this idea that Christians can live as slaves even though they've been adopted. Though we are rich in the gospel, adopted children of God with complete and direct access to the Father, we can go back to relating to Him through our record and our merits and our morals. It is though we are given a gift, but we give it back to the giver so that we can strive to earn it. Slavery is our natural state. But Paul is going to show how we can come of age. And so if you want to come to the come of age party, come next Sunday. I will tell you how you can come of age. But you see what the gospel does? How it so radically affects who you are. Your place in this world. Your freedom. Your life. Your love. Your relationships. Everything is touched by it. And leaving that out turns Christianity into a religion like every other religion, striving to please the one who we believe has authority and power over us without understanding that we do not strive. Actually, what, you, know, you know what the Bible tells us to do? Strive to enter what? Rest. The hardest thing you will ever learn to do is to learn how to strive to enter rest. What in the world does that mean? It means that it, we have to strive to see ourselves in the light of the gospel rather than in the light of what we do and accomplish in our lives. We have to strive to enter rest, to rest in Jesus, to rest in His accomplishments, which then frees us, frees us, motivates us, empowers us to live for Him. That's why there's so much turnover. That's why there, there's a, such a lack of, I don't want to call the word success, but maybe even effectiveness, is when we lose the gospel in our lives. We become enslaved to striving to find His approval when we already have it in Jesus. Most of us just don't know that yet. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for what the Bible says. It's so radical. We try to tame it. We try to dilute it. We try to 
assume we know what it's talking about, but when we really hear what your word says to us, sometimes it just floors us that maybe we've been doing it all wrong for a long time. Maybe we've not had the best motives. Maybe we haven't really seen what it means to be united to Jesus. That is the only thing that matters. It is the only thing that pleases you. And how we thank you for Jesus and who he is to us. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who've been smitten by the gospel and the love of God in Christ Jesus. And this we pray in his name. Amen.